In light of the very nasty, no good stuff going on in Ukraine, uh, the IIHF has uh, taken action against the Russians. We get a league-wide reaction on that, both uh, in the NHL and around various other hockey leagues. Uh, you would think after a bounce-back season, Philip Forsberg would be getting a contract extension soon, but that's not necessarily guaranteed. We explain why. And speaking of bounce-back campaigns, we go through five NHL campaigns and whether or not they are sustainable. Episode 309 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. We will get to the lighter side in a little bit, but uh, we're going to start with some serious news, Brett. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are at odds for reasons. Um, I think Russia, it's mostly President Vladimir Putin right now. And uh, the IIHF has seen enough and they're taking action against Russia. Yeah, uh, yeah. obviously we're not a politics podcast and we'll leave that to uh, the professionals um, if you wanted to get that, that news story and updates on that yeah, the stuff. the political pundits, you, you yeah. know where to go to find them. Exactly. That's not However, I, I mean, I will say that, like, in hockey, Russia, like, Russia loves hockey um, and it's a big part of the NHL now, um, especially since, like, Alex Ovechkin's the biggest goal scorer. Kucherov, you also have Panarin, um, a bunch of guys, Vasilevsky. So um, I, I, I'm sure I'm missing like an obvious other Russian, big time Russians in the NHL currently, but um, Malkin. Uh, so so yeah, this is kind of a big deal because a couple of them, a couple of the guys, like um, well Panarin has been pretty publicly against Putin, uh, but uh, Ovechkin had to have a press conference. And uh, officially state that, like, yeah, he doesn't like war. Um, he also, like, but, like, strangely, I don't know if you heard the, the press conference, because I did send it to you, but, um, but like, it was kind of crazy, too, because he says, like, you know, because then when I read the clip, he, like, he feels for all the people on both sides um, of the aisle and, like, all that stuff, and then... And then uh, on his Instagram, uh, so, like, it seems like he's saying the right stuff. I mean, of course, he's, like, you know, maybe he has family that's in danger. So if he publicly goes against Putin, maybe he's worried about his family. Just like what happened with Panarin last year when uh, Panarin was very anti-Putin as well. So I, I imagine there's part of that. But then you see that, like, on his Instagram account... Uh, he still has a, his, like, profile picture is him with Putin. Um, so it's like, I don't know if that, like, it's weird that he's now, he's, he's saying, like, he's against war, but it seems like he didn't publicly denounce, uh, Vladimir Putin, um, which is, um, strange, and I, I get that he's in a tough situation, but I don't know, it just rubs me the wrong way now, um. But anyways, I don't want to get into that <laughs> anymore. Uh, but uh, but in terms of other hockey news with uh, a potential World War Three happening, um, 
the uh, according to Gord Miller, uh, the I or the double IHF um, hockey has uh, removed Russia from for the rest of any involvement for the rest of 2022. So that includes the World Championships and the World Junior Championships that are scheduled for August and December. Um, and um, also, uh, the World Juniors this year were supposed to be in Russia, but they're going to move them out of Russia um, for obvious reasons. So um, it is kind of sad just from the standpoint that there's probably players on the team that had nothing to do with this or aren't in support of Putin's actions. But at the same time, this is like a big action to make and something that sends a clear message to Putin that like, hey, uh, the world is not okay with what he's doing. Um, and, you know, if this is like, we know that Putin loves hockey. He Apparently he has like 500 goals in 20 games or something like that. But, uh, um, but I, I totally get it. I just feel bad for like those, uh, those kids who, um, who have uh, like no say in it, but I, I totally understand this and it's a good thing that this is what, you know, it's good that the IIHF is putting a st- putting their foot down on this. Yeah, I mean, like when you look at uh, the world stage, this is the best way the IIHF can make a statement. They yeah. have no say in what happens on the political sphere. That's out of their hands. What they can do is control how this affects Team Russia. I wouldn't go out and say, oh, like Dominic Hasek said, that every NHL player who's Russian, even those who didn't support Putin, they should be suspended until further notice. I I really don't get that. Because it's just not realistic. Like, to suspend someone just for saying, you're guilty by association and you're not allowed to play hockey because the guy leading your country is kind of a dick and... He's doing some really bad stuff. And while he needs to be punished, um, it shouldn't really come at the expense of several players' livelihoods that have worked their entire career to get to this point, all of those tireless hours at the rink. And it's all going to be taken away because one guy's struggle for power has turned into this big global thing. Like, don't get me wrong, the, the president of Russia is way out of line and he definitely needs to pay for it. But suspending various Russian players, even guys like Panarin, uh, out of NHL hockey for the foreseeable future, that's just dumb. It doesn't really accomplish anything. I think the IIHF went the right uh, route for the time being. What they'll do beyond 2022, I guess it depends on, on how things go. Especially when you consider that this... This all happened like a day after the Olympics. There were uh, rumors that I heard that um, China's was like, hey, Russia, if you're going to do this, just wait till after the Olympics are done. Yeah. <laughs> which which I think is kind of worked. But anyways, getting aside from that, um, I think what the NHL should do is if you're not going to, if the IIHF is not going to allow the Russians to take part in the World Championships and in the World Juniors, that the draft-eligible players should be given just a combine. They should be given their own separate combine, like get get a couple of workouts in, see what they can really do, um, put on this, like, showcase 
and that's just completely separate from you know the international competition and just have a real close look at these guys obviously you're gonna see them in in league games but with the climate in Europe right now I'm not really sure how many scouts are gonna be willing to attend some of these games uh, so I, I think that's something the NHL should explore if it comes to it because if um, the, the, the young Russian guys that are gonna be draft eligible they shouldn't have uh, their stocks take a hit just because of external factors. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe they, they eventually do some exceptions for Russian athletes, but I don't know if, like, that makes sense, or, like, optics-wise, that makes sense. Because, like, obviously it's poor kids and all that stuff, but, I mean, I don't really see a way that you can really um, make an exception for them. Um, you know, but... Uh, but yeah, maybe I don't know. We'll, we'll I, I like again. It's separate from international competition. You just put a couple of workouts in, and you just see what these guys can do, and just like have your own like one-on-one evaluations that way. Yeah. Because again, sometimes, like I said, when the World Juniors got postponed due to COVID, this isn't like the be-all and end-all of uh, their NHL draft stock, but it definitely factors in. So I, I think you would at least need to get a couple of close glances at them before making an educated decision as to where these guys fall in the draft. Yeah. You're not going to get them in in-game experiences, but at least a couple works out. Uh, yeah. At least a couple workouts. Yeah, you won't get the full picture that way, but at least it's something. Yeah, I, I guess that, that is a good point. I, I and as I mentioned, like I feel bad for them because it's not like their fault that they're, they're yeah, it's not. You know, their leader you, you is a dictator. The, you got to make the most of a very right uh, tense but, situation. I don't know. I, I guess it's just I feel, I feel like it's it's easier said than done. So that, that's really yeah, no, point. for sure, for sure. Um, all right. Uh, in terms of other hockey news that happened. The outdoor games happened. Um, the uh, what ended up going on though was uh, the uh, wait. I had the here, but the Lightning ended up winning. Um, I believe it was four two. Um, oh no, no, sorry, four three. Oh, three two, three two. Um, uh, I guess I I did have a good transition because Kucherov had a big game, but uh, but I I didn't. Um, and, and yeah, it was an outdoor game. It was in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, it was in the Titan stuff. They had Pekka Rene do the, the puck drop. Um, I will say like, uh, both me and Steve are, were laughing when they announced the, um, the uniforms and what they look like and the Predators. I was uniforms. laughing painfully. I yeah. thought it was the most cringiest uniforms oh, I've yeah, ever yeah. seen in my life. Is Mostly it, the Nashville ones. The yeah. Lightning were eh, but like, would I yeah. buy it? Not really. Well, the the Lightning ones were pretty standard. It felt like they were like yeah. they were okay. For, I mean, for outdoor games, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're kind of standard. Uh, but like, yeah, the the Nashville ones did not look great. Uh, but I will say, when you watch them on the game. At the like when you watch them, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Um, it's just like you know, like because I like the blue and yellow uh, combination. What was also interesting though was the Predators had stars on their helmets, like big star t- stickers on their helmets, and the the 
Lightning had like the the lightning bolts on their helmets, which was an interesting look. I don't know if I like that um, necessarily for like uh, other games, but I guess it add added to the whole feel of the game. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was definitely interesting, and it's always kind of cool whenever you see an outdoor game. Um, I remember my, when my dad was watching for a brief second, he was noticing how, like, it didn't really feel like an outdoor game. But I think it's like, you know, because outside of the fact that you could see, like, you know, usually when you're watching a game on TV, you can see, like, the stands. Um, but, like, this time you could just, you know, you, you didn't really. Um, and they covered up the whole field. So that's probably why dad felt that way. But I don't know. It was it was kind of cool at the same time. It's just, um, yeah, we'll see. Um, what I what I mean by the jerseys uh, to elaborate on my point is no, it's fine. I don't evaluate the jerseys from looking from the very top of the stands and watching the game from afar. When I go to a game and I see a fan up close and personal, and that's what they're wearing, I'm just like, what team is the that <laughs> right like that's how i evaluate a jersey is like up close and personal does it look good do i want to buy this well that's why i say like when i Which saw it i didn't really like it well when i saw it actually like out like on the ice and like players wearing it i was like okay i can see this um it's just like when you actually look at the details of it then you're like okay this is probably not that good but um but yeah anyways uh but uh, we do mention this also because uh, Phillips Forsberg, uh, he actually scored uh, one of the goals for the Predators in this game. Um, so good transition. Uh, apparently, he's, uh, he's asked out of uh, Nashville. Um, I think it's according to Andy Strickland, um, who had the report. Well, it, I, I, it says, according to him, they're actively shopping him. That doesn't necessarily mean he wants out of Nashville. Okay, But it's... That doesn't tell me they're 100% close on an extension and they're open to all options here. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's good to it, know. The reason why I think, and Brett and I are on the same page here that we mentioned, he could have been on his way out. You remember that Victor yeah. Arvidsson trade to the Kings and he wasn't really too happy about that? Both of us have this inkling that he's still kind of pissed about that. Yep. But what's interesting, so, too, is that the Predators are actually in good shape right now. Uh, well, not good shape. They I are. Say that. Yeah. yeah, they're they're a good team. They kind of, they had, like, they we all thought that they would be a bad team this year um, in all intents and purposes. Like, they're, they're, they may not make it far in the playoffs, but, you know, they still have UC Saros. They have Forsberg. Yossi is uh, doing well. We're about to talk about Matt Duchesne, who's having a bounce back year. So, like, you know, they, they, they could, you know, do something. Um, so it is a little odd that it's like they're now shopping um, Philip Forsberg, who would ineffectively make it less uh, le- or more hard or harder, I should say. That's not more hard is not a word. Um, harder for the Predators to, to make the playoffs and, and – and go far if they do make it. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that makes the most sense. However, um, if, like, Forsberg is unhappy with Nashville um, because of that, 
you know, trading Victor Arvidsson and all that stuff, and and like they feel and the Predators feel like they can't sign him for the next off season, then yeah, it's kind of like the John Klingberg situation. It's like you might be able to make the playoffs, but you're you may not go far if you do. So so yeah, I guess it does make sense that you could sell Philip Forsberg if there, there is a right offer. However, I don't know. Like, I feel like his the offer for him is going to be pretty pretty high, um, and I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I I would be. I'm not sure how much like how much teams are willing to offer him um, right now, uh, con- considering that this would be a rental thing. Um, but I guess it, it's only a big thing if like maybe Forsberg is still unhappy with it, but he's. He's uh he's playing his way like he he doesn't look like it because you know he's still doing pretty well, but yeah we'll see. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? So, so the National Predators are in a very peculiar situation because they do have a fair bit of uh, trade deadline uh, cap space to work with, so they could they could load up and and get some pieces uh, as it is right now. The cap hit on Philip Forsberg is $6 million this year, and then he becomes a free agent. Uh, they have a projected cap space right now of $10.26 million. If that comes off the books, they have $16 million-ish, maybe more than that. Um, it should be known they have RFAs like Luke Kunin, uh, Jakob Trenin uh, they'll, they'll have to worry about. Um there, there are a couple of other guys uh, that uh, they could probably keep around, but it's not like major parts. For the most part, the, uh, their core remains intact. Now, th- this is what I mean by interesting. In the first 39 games this season, he scored 26 goals and 44 points. Again, bounce back season for him. Uh, this is where it could get pretty dicey is uh, this little tidbit from Elliot Friedman uh, in his latest 32 thoughts, um, which uh, hit uh, the Sportsnet.ca shells February 25th, midnight hours. And uh, this was a part of what he had to say. Uh, he goes on to describe uh, what Philip Forsberg is probably asking for. Um, and apparently the National Predators know that the price tag must be higher than what Duchesne and Johansson are making, which is $8 million. Yikers. Uh, and if he wants to stay in Nashville, Forsberg knows he's going to have to be coming in at a cap hit lower than Roman Yossi's, which is $9.059 million. So somewhere between $8 to $9 million is what Forsberg hopes he will get. Now... Here's the thing. Duchesne and Johansson are not worth $8 million. I don't think Forsberg is worth $8 million, uh, given the inconsistencies in his game. You also have to consider the type of guys that are on the open market right now. We mentioned it last week. Johnny Gaudreau, career season for him. Guess what? Philip Forsberg and Johnny Gaudreau are both left-wingers. So, hypothetically... If Forsberg were to hit the open market and doesn't want to stay in Nashville, Nashville could sell him for futures and maybe get like a rental uh, piece for the playoff run and then go out and get Johnny Gaudreau in the offseason. That right. could be a possibility, I would say. Yep. Uh, there, are, Let's see. 
Uh, Patrick Laine, if if uh, they think it's worth giving up uh, some pieces uh, for a guy that's uh, kind of struggled at times to just drive, per- perhaps they go after him. Uh, you could argue the same with Matthew Kachuk, but again, it's going to be a little bit costly. There are some other options uh, like Andre Palat, uh, Nino Niederreiter, they could go out and get. Kevin Fiala is, uh, is a guy that's an RFP and is probably going to ask for a lot, so maybe not the best place to spend there. Uh, Andre Burakovsky, though, is available. He could be a good uh, bargain uh, for the right price there, too. So there are definitely options for the Nashville Predators. It's not just uh, we have to keep Philip Forsberg. Johnny Gaudreau, if he really wants to go to a team that will pay him the big bucks and he wants to be on a team that uh, for the immediate future is ready to win, Nashville might be a good landing spot for him. So this this could go so many different directions. But if Philip Forsberg is asking for upwards of $8-plus million, I definitely think twice if I'm David Poyle because I'm not sure over time if he's going to be worth the pay grade. I think a guy like Johnny Gaudreau is worth that kind of a coin because I, I think the ceiling and the consistency is a bit higher with Goudreau than it is Forsberg. That's just me, though. Yeah, I guess the, the interesting thing about Nashville is that they have Matt Duchesne for a long-term contract. They have Ryan Johansson for a long-term contract. Yossi Ekholm. Um, and even UC Saros for a little bit, even though it's at $5 million and that's not too bad mm-hmm. for someone like Saros. Exactly. So, so, but like, you know, $8 million for Duchesne, $8 million for Ryan Johansson, that's a lot of money. Um, and it's, it's kind of surprising that they have $10 million in cap space. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that I think, like, if, if Forsberg wants to get more money, um, I'm not sure if Nashville will be the place for him to do that. Um, but, but, yeah, maybe, but at the same time, maybe he's just... You know, he wants to stay in, in Nashville and because um, that's where his stuff is. So so maybe he'll he'll stay, but uh, who knows? There, there is a chance that... I think it would be a lot easier. I think what's, what's interesting is it would be a lot easier if the Predators were bad. Um, but since they're like a middle-of-the-road team right now, um, it's, it's just hard to make a trade right now So um, for, for one of your best players. Um, all right, so now we're going to our next topic here. Uh, Zdeno Chara, um, he broke a record uh, this this week. Uh, he became the he has the most games played uh, by defenseman. Um, he beat out uh, Chris Chelios. Um, so and he has uh, six hundred or a thousand six hundred and fifty three. Games played. Uh, he's kind of a living legend around here because uh, uh, he played in Ottawa. He also played in Boston, of course. So, um, so yeah. And those were his t- two best uh, stints of the four teams that he's played um, for. So, um, so that's definitely something that he'll always be a part of our hearts. I think what's interesting about Chara's stature or his career is that. He's a tall guy, obviously, uh, but, like, at the beginning of his career, he was just, like, you know, he was just a throwaway piece um, in the Yashin trade, 
Um, and then he was pretty good. And then he, uh, in Ottawa, he was like, uh, basically competing between Wade Redden and Chara. Um, Wade Redden as like the big defenseman in Ottawa. And Ottawa chose wrongly. Sorry, Steve. And then he goes to free agency and then he signs this big deal in Boston. Um, and that could have also faltered as well. And then all of a sudden he has 14 years in the Bruins. Um, where he gets a thousand games, um, but like what's interesting is is like his play style is just this aggressive type, um, and he's like a really tall defenseman um, as well. So you would you wouldn't think that he would be playing when he's forty four years old, um, but yeah, here he is. He's he's still playing, and this is like you know just a. I guess it's a like a, like yeah he's he's not. You know, he only has eight points in 45 games. Um, but, like, even still, he's averaging 18 minutes of ice time for New York right now, which is pretty insane. I don't know if you realize this, uh, but uh, during his record-breaking night, he actually got in a fight with Jeffrey Veal, who's a rookie for the Sharks. <laughs> so I find that kind of funny, too. It's just like, of course, Char, like a 44-year-old, just gets into a fight with uh, with a rookie um, who probably wasn't even born when he when Chara first started playing, so it's just um, so yeah, it's just uh, you know he's kind of a manimal, um, and uh, I don't think we'll ever see anyone break that record, um, even though I guess Chris Chelios was was <laughs> technically close, even though obviously Chelios was before Chara, um, but yeah, um, anything else that you want to say about? this man well not only are we probably not going to see a a defenseman with this much endurance to span a career as long as chara has but uh, a unique player like chara is once in a lifetime joy to watch and the fact that he left ottawa for boston for the money it's not like he was going into a situation where the Bruins were ready to win. The Bruins right. were going through a retool of sorts. Yep. And the fact that Chera was able to establish so much success with that team over the eons of seasons that he was there is just a testament to his leadership as well. Like the yep. way he commanded a room, the way he earned the respect of his teammates that that I remember more about Chair with the Bruins. Like he was definitely a great hockey player with the Sens and a great physical presence, and he made the defense better. But he wasn't always the star of the show. You had Hosa, you had Alfredson, obviously. Yep. Um, in his final season, they had Danny Heatley uh, joining the fold. They had uh, Jason Spezza. They had uh, some pretty decent goaltending, too. There were a lot of great players on those teams. He wasn't the only one. But it all started with uh, and ended with Zidane O'Shara in Boston. And he took the Bruins a long way. And even after he left the Bruins, you look at uh, his stint with Washington, although it was brief, I'm sure his leadership helped uh, the yep. Capitals uh, reach the playoffs. They didn't do a whole lot when they got there. But outside of... His first stint with the Islanders, wherever Chera has gone, his teams that he's been on have been able to go into the playoffs and at times go on some very deep runs. Yep. And Chera played the big part in those environments. So 
it, it's one thing to step out there each and every single night and give it your all, but just to be that ultimate competitor, a guy that um, you you don't really want to go up against. He's a he's a pain in the butt, but he's an honorable pain in the butt to play against. Like. Chair is th- that type of specimen that could probably kill a man if he really wanted to. Yeah. And at times probably doesn't even know his own strength. So that's why when he goes out to fight a guy, he probably fights with a lot more class and, and honor and courtesy than I'm sure you see out of some fighters. Because he knows that uh, at the age of, what, 43 or 44, however long he's been in the game... He, he could still probably kill a man if he wanted. Yeah, to. no, that, that of course you touch up on the Bruins identity <laughs> before I do. That's such a that's a funny thing. But yes, no, of of course. And, and the yeah. way and the way he adapts his diet too, yeah. like yeah. he's on a plant based diet for his final years in Boston too, and it's probably yeah. still on that exact same diet. He's yeah. been able to adapt uh, to a changing style of play. Yeah, he also, uh, I, b- I believe I remember, I'm not, I'm not sure if it was every year, but I believe uh, he used to, like, climb Mount Kilimanjaro in the off-seasons, like, every year or something like that. And that just shows, that like, how... stamina, for sure. Yeah, yeah, like, he, he is, like, that just shows, like, how crazy, like, crazy dedicated he is. That even, like, after playing, like, a grueling sport... Uh, like hockey, he's like still up for like climbing a mountain and <laughs> things like that. Um, so it's, it's but yeah, you're totally right too. It's like when he joined the Bruins, uh, yeah, the Bruins weren't what we thought of them right now, but a big part of the reason why we think of the Bruins as what they are right now is because of Chara. Even when he's like not there anymore, he's like he had a big impact on. Bergeron's career, a big impact on Marchand's career, um, and, a, you know, a big impact on the entire franchise. So it's, um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely, he, he still has some influence in Boston, even when he's, you know, two years removed from, from that. Um, but yeah, definitely, I, I was just thinking that, like, the fact that, like, he plays such a physical style of play that it is, it's just so crazy that he's able to like go this long um so so yeah even like just playing 18 minutes a night for the islanders right now is is pretty insane but what's interesting is like he played his first four years in the islanders as well he didn't have a ton of points um in those in fact he had like his last two years he had a minus 27 um and then a minus 27 as well but then once he got into Ottawa, I guess all of a sudden he starts shooting, <laughs> and I mean his uh, plus minus also improves as well. So it's just like interesting from that standpoint too. It's like he just wasn't good in the for the first four years of his career, and then all of a sudden, yeah, he just turns into another player um, once he gets to Ottawa. Um, so so yeah. Anyways, uh, we could probably go on and on about how good Chara is, but we won't. Um, instead, we'll save, we'll save that for when he retires. Yeah, I mean, I probably did mention it when he uh, actually did sign with the the Capitals. So, so maybe yeah. you, you'll be <laughs> we, a first we, we all know that we love Chara around these parts. Um, yeah, who, who would have thought? Um, but anyways, um, so now uh, I I think I wanted to take this opportunity because, well, for two reasons. 
One, I have Patrick Laine and Elias Pedersen in my fantasy team. And I wanted to show... I only have Peterson, but uh, he's been yeah, killing you can still You can still say it of the guys that we're talking about. But, like, I had them... Uh, I'll say this selfishly. I wanted to cover this because I've been holding these guys for, like, um, the whole season. Um, for Pedersen, like, last year, Laine didn't have a great season last year either. And, like, you know, there was... Every time I was talking to an owner, there would always be like, hey, do you want to trade uh, Pedersen? Do you want to trade Line A? What's, what's your asking price for them? And I just always said no. And then I was starting to lose face that, that we never see those types of player, that, that type of play that we saw of those two players. Um, so so I, it did give me thought of like, well, maybe this is just who they are now. They're just inconsistent or whatever. But now, they're both hot at the same time, and I couldn't be happier because uh, this is around the playoff push uh, for all my leagues. So we're going to start off with Patrick Laine. Um, and, um, and yeah, I guess maybe because you were mentioning this when we were talking about Philip Forsberg, it's like, yeah, maybe uh, Laine might not be consistent. We'll, we'll see. However, uh, currently he has 36 points in 33 games. Uh, last year for Columbus, he had 21 points in 45 games. Not, not too bad. Of course, he was traded uh, to Columbus, and, and he was under torts. Uh, so there was that. However, uh, he had, like, you know, his, uh, rookie, uh, his rookie year, he had 64 points in 73 games, plus uh, 36 goals um, in that time. Um, and then the following year, he had 44 goals. Um, in 82 games um, as a 19-year-old. So, of course, that's pretty good. But then, all of a sudden, the next year, he had 30 goals, yeah, 50 points in 82 games. It's not bad, but it's not great uh, compared to what we were thinking of Line A because he had 70 points the previous year as well. I forgot to mention that. Um, and then he has uh, 63 points in 68 games. Um, and supposedly, this was during the time when he wanted out of, uh, of Winnipeg. Um, and uh, then he gets his wish, and he goes to Columbus. And, yeah, he, he ends up getting 21 points in 45 games. Um, and you, I guess you could attribute it to the fact that maybe he was just getting used to Tortorella um, or, the, you know, or the fact that no one on Columbus was doing well, um, the fact that it was you know, still like he was playing without fans, um, or all that stuff, but yeah, now, uh, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of seeming like that throughout the entire year until January 27th. I actually looked back <laughs> at his log of when this, uh, when he actually started getting really, really hot. Um, but, uh, yeah, January 27th, he had two assists. Then the following game, he had two goals. Then the next day he had two goals. Then um, after the All-Star break, he had two goals again with one assist. Um, I could go on and on. But he ended up having an 11-game point streak that ended this Friday uh, where he played Carolina and he had no points. But in those 11 games, he had 13 goals and 8 assists, um, which is incredible. So, or the, that, I guess, equals to 21 points in 11 games, which is insane. Um, and he had 37 shots on goal, um, and all that stuff. So, um, 
I'm, I can't do math in my head as as famously <laughs> as we know. So, but um, but I think that's a, a roughly. Let's see if I can do this. Um, three three shots per game. Uh, so that's that's not too bad. But, anyways, um, yeah, it's it's I I don't know if we'll see this continuing because I feel like Columbus is still struggling to get points our goals up on the board and all that stuff. But it is nice to see that Patrick Line is finally getting it together and it is his contract year. So, uh, or, you know, he's an RFA next year. So, um, so I, I get that he's, he's going to, uh, he's probably going to get a lot of money, but I guess they're like, when I read all those stats, it's like, okay, he had one bad year, which was last year. Um, and, and maybe he'll eventually, you know, he, he could get back. But I don't know if we'll ever see, like, 70 points in 82 games. But at the same time, he is on pace for about, like, 90 points right now. So, um, or in the 80-point range. So I, I could see that, you know, maybe he does keep this pace. Um, but, yeah, we, we don't really have questions for this show. It's just really, I guess, the only thing that we want to mention is, is, like, what um like do we think this is going he's going to be consistent with this and we'll continue this on throughout the final stretch so uh, i'll touch on that but also beyond this season too because i definitely think that's important patrick line seemed to be a guy that when you put the right people around him i think over time we realized this we know he has a deadly shot, but I think it's important for Patrick Line to have a setup man. And he had that in Winnipeg. And if you look at the numbers this year, that setup man appears to be Jacob Voracek. On the power play, over the course of 80 minutes and 38 seconds of ice time, uh, the quartet of Jacob Voracek, Boone Jenner, Oliver Bjorkstrand, and Patrick Line have outscored opponents 13 to two in power play situations and outshot them 63 to 21. So that's just on special teams. It should also be noted that Patrick Line is averaging three minutes and six seconds of power play time, which if you, if you look overall at the season and compare it to some of the other years, it's uh, almost a full minute higher than last year. Last year it was at, an all-time low, 2 minutes, 9 seconds. The lowest before that was 2 minutes and 44 seconds when he got 36 goals his rookie season. So last year was a bit of a tough ride for him when he had 24 points in 46 games, 12 of them goals, only had 82 shots, so it was still a decent shooting percentage, 14.6. But what's what's interesting overall in all situations, he's only averaging 18-15 of ice time per game, He's only taken 91 shots. He scored 19 goals in 33 games. So his shooting percentage is a ridiculous 20.9%. And he's only got three power play goals. Out of those uh, 13 power play goals that he was a part of, he only scored three of them. And he has nine power play points on the season. So the numbers tell me he's been very efficient with his chances. And you especially look at uh, the better parts of uh, the past month. And uh, it, it shows that way again. Two assists, one shot, January 27th against the Rangers. Then he gets two goals on 
five shots against Montreal. Of course, uh, a lot of people are able to solve Montreal, but uh, Patrick Laine uh, had that uh, clutch game winner against the Habs, so nothing to sneeze at there. A game winner is a game winner. He has another two-goal game, only takes three shots this time. That was against the Florida Panthers, no big deal there. Only one of the best teams in the league right now. Then they go up against uh, the uh, Capitals, the Blue Jackets do. He gets two goals and one assist. Uh, February 8th was that game, and he had five shots uh, in that contest. Uh, gets an assist the next game against Buffalo. Then he gets two points against uh, the Habs. I believe that's where uh, the yep, that's where the game winner was there. Uh, then he gets an assist against Calgary. Then he gets a hat trick against Chicago on five shots. Two assists on four shots against Buffalo the game after that. Uh, two goals against the Leafs on just four shots. Uh, actually gets the OT winner there. And then uh, before his uh, goal streak, uh, before his uh, point streak uh, came to a halt uh, against the Carolina Hurricanes, Patrick Line had a point in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 straight games. And out of those games, he had a goal in seven of them, which is pretty crazy. The thing is, we've some seen this from Patrick Liney before. His By the way, some of the – sorry. Had like 30 goals. I, I do want to interject that in some of those games, he had two goals, not just one goal in those games. Yeah. Well. Right. He had a couple – he had a lot of multi-goal performances, uh, to be precise – he had four multi-goal performances uh, during, no, sorry, five multi-goal performances uh, during that stretch. And he actually got, uh, we actually had a three-game multi-goal scoring streak in that. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, Brett, we've seen this from Patrick Lyon before. Remember his third season with Winnipeg and that he got 30 goals and 50 points, which seemed underwhelming for him? Most of that came in one month. And most of this damage surprise surprise has come over the course of a single month of hockey so i'm interested to see what march and april look like for patrick line as well as next year if he can continue this into next season on a blue jackets team that's starving for goals then i think we can safely say the old patrick line is back and he's not going anywhere otherwise i fear like he could get this alex kovalev type of aura where like He's a very good player. He's got all the tools, but it really all depends. It not not to say like he flips the switch on and off, but it just seems at times when the goals are piling up, he seems like he's more engaged with the play. Um, I definitely think he tries on the two way side uh, to be better in that regard. And also, let's not forget he's doing most of this not only on a Blue Jackets team that's not known for scoring goals and relies on goaltending to keep them afloat, but they're working with a first-year NHL head coach here. Right. Like, Brad Larson is, has had a couple of seasons as an assistant coach behind his belt, but this is the first time he's actually running the show behind the bench, and there were actually times uh, in previous seasons where, as we found out, uh, it was last year, uh, Patrick Laine and uh, Larson were a bit at odds Right. Uh, and that's why I think uh, Line was uh, benched or had to miss a game uh, was was because of one of those disagreements with Larson. But uh, now that uh, he's starting to look like the Patrick Line of old, um, it, 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 I, I, I still don't know what to make of it. 
I don't know if this is another one of Patrick Lyons just having one of those months where everything's going in, or if or if this is or if this is just straight up Patrick Line, second overall pick, twenty sixteen. This is what you pay to see every night. Well, technically, I guess it's just a little bit more of a month that he's been this hot. But yeah, that is a good point mm-hmm. that he. Uh, it, it's very possible that this could just be a sign of. Um, you know, just him just being a very streaky player. However, like, you know, if it, it looks like his worst year was last year with 24 points in 46 games. Yep. Um, so even if you get that, I don't know if you're necessarily complaining. Um, or even like, you know, his third year in the league when he had 50 points in 82 games, that's not bad either. Um, and 30 goals. So I, I don't... I don't know if it's necessarily that, like, he's he's going to necessarily, like, even, like, the bad Patrick Line, line A is not that bad. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it is cool to see that he's, like, it, it looks like he, we might be seeing the Patrick Line A that we saw in 2017, 2018, which could be pretty exciting. Um, and it should also be noted that yeah. his 82-game pace, uh, points for 82, uh, is at 89. His highest entering this season was in 2019-20 with the Jets when he had 76. Yeah. So that's 13 points higher. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So we'll now go to uh, the um, uh, the other player that I mentioned already is Elias Peterson. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's, he's kind of... I guess it's kind of a similar uh, career path as Patrick Laine, but not really at the same time <laughs> when I'm looking at his stats. Um, so he uh, won the Calder that year, uh, where he had 66 points in 71 games. Then the following year, he had 66 points in 68 games. Uh, this was that, uh, I believe that was the year that it was the bubble year where uh, the Canucks actually went far in the playoffs, a lot to do with the fact that uh, Pedersen was there, Peterson was there. Uh, then the next, the following year, he, uh, you know, he had a slow start to the season, but uh, he had managed to pick it up. He had 21 points in 26 games, um, but his season was cut short because he had a wrist surgery. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then he had, then I was pulling up his uh, splits here because uh, all of a sudden he ends up having. 14 points in 23 uh, games um, in October and November. But then a funny thing happens. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux uh, takes over. And uh, you would think that would mean, um, okay, well, because a lot of the Canucks started playing better. And you would think that would mean that initially that, you know, Pedersen would be like, you know, would also take off as well. But it didn't, you know, he kind of had a slow start even when Bruce Boudreaux was in the mix. Uh, he had six points in 10 games in December. Um, and then in January, he was even worse. He had seven points in 12 games. Um, and then all of a sudden in the month of February, um, he has 13 points in eight games, uh, which is insane. Um, and a lot like Patrick Line too, and just like all of a sudden he's just on this hot, hot, hot streak going on. Um, but like he still has 37 points in 53 games. 
Um, I was trying to figure out like how many points he has under Boudreaux. Um, and in those 28 games, he has 25 points. So that looks pretty good. Um, but it doesn't look like it if you just see his like stats overall because he has 37 points in 53 games, which is not what we're really expecting out of uh, P- Peterson because he's more of like a point-per-game type player. But he might be just making up for it right now. Um, I also uh, follow this uh, hockey scout uh, who works for Elite Prospects right now, and he's a huge Canucks fan. So he's attuned to all this stuff. But uh, he mentioned this uh, two days ago. Pedersen has uh, 10 points in his last four games, 13 in his last seven, and 20 in, his, in the last 16. So, uh, so, so yeah, all of a sudden, uh, Pedersen is just, uh, just figuring stuff out and, and all that stuff. Um, when I was reading all those stats, though, I, it sort of like feels like, yeah, he, he, he never really was gone. But then when you factor the fact that he did have a wrist surgery, um, and, uh, that could definitely impact your shooting ability and all that stuff. So yeah, I guess it does make sense that he's he's coming back with a vengeance, um, and uh, I I think this might be here to stay. Maybe not at this rate where he's like ten points in four games, type good, but I think we'll see him um, be become a point per game player for the rest of the year. Uh, by point per game player the rest of the year, you don't mean like the final stats will say he's a point per game player, but like moving forward, right. the final games that he's playing, he's at a point per game. Pace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess he'll have a couple nights where he'll be multiple points and stuff, but yeah, I don't know if he'll ever he'll get like to that eighty two points because uh, I I just feel like that that might be too tough. Because let's see here, so there, he has thirty seven points right now in fifty three games, so that means he'd have to have like. 50 points in um roughly 50 points in like 20 games which i guess is doable but i don't know if it's gonna happen yeah well i mean bruce boudreaux has that effect on teams where they just catch fire right so hey you never know and the best players are usually the best players and definitely they need elias pearson to be the best player on the team now Another thing that strikes me about Elias Peterson is that he gets a wicked ton of power play time. As a rookie, he was averaging 335 per game. Second year, 353. Last year, a whopping 424. And this year, it's uh, down to 326, which is still a lot for a guy in his fourth season. And And throughout that time period, it's pretty much around 18 minutes a game never over 19 minutes it's been around uh, the highest it's been is 1834 um so so j- just to just to give you a vantage point there to start the year a lot of the talk was what's wrong with the league is peterson and in particular what's wrong with the vancouver canucks and i think the two are intertwined in some way as the league peterson goes so do the vancouver canucks Although you could probably make the stronger case that as Thatcher Demko goes, uh, so do the Canucks, and they're at rock bottom if not for Demko. Because I do think a lot of Elias Pearson's success and a lot of their offensive success relies on Thatcher Demko stopping pucks because there are times where the Canucks get bombarded with shots every night, that least game being the prime example of that. 
and yet they're able to come away with results. And they weren't coming away with results early on. Their power play wasn't really that good, um, or what certainly wasn't good enough, and their penalty kill was even worse than that. But when you look at uh, Peterson's production, and I'm going to get to two things here. The first is he needs to be a better even-strength player. He needs to get more points at even strength. And I say that because if you look at the line combinations, uh, according to Dauber Prospects, the line that he spent the most time with at even strength with 126 minutes and 16 seconds, JT Miller, Brock Besser. Those are his two linemates. The Canucks have scored three goals and given up two. So that's a plus one goal differential. But still, three to two, that's awfully low for... You know, a line that's where you're accounted for 16.5% of your even strength ice time, only a 3-2 to two goal differential, that, that doesn't really... I feel like that should be higher, especially for a playmaker and a goal scorer like Elias Peterson. So that's one thing. The other thing is they're very good on the power play with Peterson. The top line uh, that you spent the most power play time... Uh, 37.6%, 67 minutes, 44 seconds on the year. That line features Miller, Horvat, Besser, and Peterson. Canucks have scored 15 goals, only given up one with that uh, quartet on the ice in power play situations. Uh, with Miller, Chase on Horvat, and Peterson, 7 to nothing goal differential. The Canucks lean heavily on their power play is what I'm saying uh, to get most of their offense. So Elias Peterson needs to get more involved at even strength. I think that needs to change. Uh, I would also like to see him get more success without the likes of Miller and Horvat. There was chatter that he has preferences of what line mates he would like to play with. That habit needs to be shaken and fast because I think that's what's holding him back from taking that next step. To take the next step as a superstar, a reliable superstar in this league, you need to be able to score in all situations, regardless of who your linemates are. It's why we talk about guys like Connor McDavid as being the best of the best. If Elias Pearson wants to be in that category, he needs to do what Connor McDavid uh, does and just get results no matter what the circumstances are. So uh, from an offense perspective, that's uh, another thing that uh, he needs to work on. And then I think the consistency uh, will follow after that. I also think uh, the key test, similar to Patrick Laine, is next year. When you have a full season with Bruce Boudreaux at the helm, behind the bench, calling the shots, what is the typical Elias Pearson season? And I think we're going to see more of that next year. This year, under Boudreaux, definitely a good start. But I want to see a full, complete season of uh, Elias Peterson hockey under him before I make that call. Yeah, that that is true. I, there were rumors before Bruce Boudreaux came in that there was like tensions in the locker room, and a lot of people were saying that Peterson like refused to play with some guys, and like both Quinn Hughes and Peterson were having fights with Horvat, and uh, JT Miller was not getting or JT Miller wasn't getting along with anyone. Or something like that. So I don't know how much truth there is to those rumors. Uh, but yeah, if they, they are true, obviously that's something that they need to kick out of the system. But maybe that that has changed considering what's what's going on with the Vancouver right now. So so who actually really knows? Um, 
And, uh, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what, what did affect it was the wrist surgery. And I think once that happened, and Bruce Boudreau helps a lot too. So, so maybe that had something to do with the fact, but yeah, maybe all the, he just needed a coaching change and all of a sudden, uh, he's back to, uh, what we expect him to be. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that I don't know if like, like we just need to see him be consistent, which I guess you could say for all these guys. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think we would like to see him be more consistent, uh, throughout, um, in order to really, to really judge and be like, okay, he's actually back. But I think 10 points in four games is like pretty good indicated that, that you're, that you're back. Um, so, so we'll see. Uh, this next guy, compared to all the other guys that we're going to talk about, um, is, is more of a bounce back, or is, is less of a bounce back and more of a, like, a breakout uh, season. Because all the other guys, they've had seasons where they've been a lot better than they have been this season, but they've bounced back. At least we've seen something that, like, oh, hey, they there's something still there. Whereas for this guy, it's like, oh, finally this guy has arrived. Um, so this guy is uh, Timo Meyer. Um, and, and yeah, in seasons past, he's he's been okay. Uh, he the, I guess his best season was his third year in the league when he had 66 points in 78 games. Uh, th- but then, like, the next year, he had 49 points in 70 games with a minus 22, which stands out because I think, like, <laughs> the previous other years, um, he had just had positives. Um, in that plus minus category. Um, and then uh, last year he had 31 points in 54 games. That's not terrible, but it's like, okay, what are, what uh, do we really see out of Timo Meyer? And then this year uh, he really blew up. He has 53 points in 47 games. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that now that I'm looking here, he's getting a lot more ice time now. Uh, he has 19 minutes of ice time. In previous years, he had 60 minutes or 17 minutes, um, and you know, obviously, though, that's that's still pretty good. But um, having 19 minutes of ice time is uh, even better. Um, and yeah, he, the other part of, about it is he's 25 years old, so he's still pretty young. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it's interesting too because he was a part of that 2015 class, and there was always that those reports of like, you know, I mean, that's always been a stacked draft class already but uh but yeah he was like a top 10 pick uh that of course had mcdavid that had eichel mitch marner um and then you have like dylan strom hannafin uh pavel zaka provorov warinski and then meyer and then i guess <laughs> to round off the top 10 you have miko ranton in there so that's a pretty good top 10 um, but then, like, you know, compared to, of course, if you compare any guy to McDavid or Eichel, you're going to fall flat. But, um, but yeah, this is one of those years where it's like, oh, okay, uh, Timo Meyer is actually, like, we may actually, like, he was, like, a mid-tier superstar, but now he actually might be a legitimate superstar if he continues at this rate. Um, considering where the Sharks are going... Um, I'm not sure, like, especially if, uh, Thomas Hurdle gets traded, I'm not sure if this is going to be sustainable long-term, but, uh, but yeah, I'm definitely excited whenever, like, a, a high-caliber prospect like this, or, like, someone who was highly touted at one point in time, um, 
ends up, you know, uh, having a pretty good season. So um, I wouldn't be shocked if he, like, this is, we can expect this, but I don't know if he's more than a point per game player in the future, but maybe like, maybe like in 70 point player, I could see that. Yeah, I definitely think 70 points uh, per season is what we could see at a team of Meyer. Uh, the rate he's producing is absolutely insane. You look at the power play time, he hasn't really averaged that much power play time when you compare it to Elias Pearson, who's been upwards of three minutes uh, per year consistently. This guy hasn't even hit three minutes uh, per game in a season once. Um, in fact, uh, I think his career high is going to be this year, and it's um, around two minutes, three seconds, two minutes, 50 seconds per game, somewhere around that benchmark. Uh, when you look at the power play goals that he's been on the ice for, uh, the Sharks have a 14-3 to advantage, 14 goals, 4-3 again. So that's a plus 11 goal differential when Timo Meyer is on the ice for a power play. He has 10 power play goals. <laughs> yeah. 10 of those 14 goals on the power play have come off Timo Meyer's stick, which is absolutely insane. Uh, he has, on the season, uh, 24 goals in 47 games played, which is pretty crazy. What's also crazy is that his career high for uh, shots on goal in the season is 250. That he set in his career year um, with San Jose in 2018-19, when he had 30 goals and 66 points in 78 games. This year, in 47 games, he has 203 shots on goal, which is over four shots per game, which over a full 82 games is, wait for it, 354 shots on goal. Nuts. Absolutely crazy. So that, I don't think, is sustainable. But I can definitely see 30-plus goals, as you mentioned, Brad, 70-plus points. I can definitely see that, too. As you mentioned, the ice time has gone up. Uh, it's gone up and down the past couple of years, but it's gone up by three minutes and three seconds per game compared to last year. Uh, even a rise in power play time on ice, it's actually 235 is what he's averaging in terms of power play time per game. And he also has 91 hits. The dude's not afraid to hit. He's already had three seasons, or two seasons rather, with uh, at least 100 hits. And he's on track to do it uh, for a third time in his career, too. But uh, the fact that he has 10 of his uh, 24 career power play goals uh, this season, it could be a positive sign if the Sharks lose some offense in Thomas Hurdle. And you might be thinking, well, he has a bit of chemistry with Thomas Hurdle, though. He also has chemistry with Logan Couture, who is the team captain and probably not going anywhere anytime soon. So... Mm -hmm. I think from a chemistry perspective, Timo Meyer is going to do just fine. Uh, the last couple of years have left a lot to be desired, but hopefully this is the Timo Meyer uh, we're going to see. Again, I don't know if it's 92 points per year good, but definitely 70 points per year, Brett, as you mentioned, is a reasonable threshold for him. Yeah, the other thing that stands out that I forgot to mention, uh, he's averaging 4.32 shots per game. Uh, which is pretty insane. Um, so. I will also mention, though, um, he has cooled off a little bit. Uh, he had that five-goal performance against the Kings sure. on January 17th. 
between uh, January 29th and February 14th, mind you, he, he missed a bit of time for reasons. He played four games, one pointless in all of them. And um, when he has gotten on the board, it's been uh, in three of the past five games. He has a couple of multi-point games spread across there. So the numbers have been a bit inconsistent. But again, you look at some of these shot totals. Uh, January 26th against Washington, he had nine shots on goal. February 17th against Vancouver, he finished with eight. He got nine against the Ducks um, earlier this week on February 22nd, too. So the, the shots are going in bunches. And so long as that continues to happen, he's going to get more opportunities to score goals. So on, on that side of things, uh, that's that's where you can you can see the type of hot streaks continuing. But I don't know if continuously on a game-by-game basis, if he's on the level of, like, the elite scores of the NHL right, right now. Yeah, but, I mean, like, shooting for – Point three per shots per game is, is pretty good. So uh, yeah, or if you get over four shots per game, uh, you're yeah. bound to get at least one goal every now and then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, we'll see. Maybe yeah, uh, we'll see. He did he did score against the Bruins last night, so there is yes, that. Yes, he, he did. Um, okay, uh, so the next guy we're going to talk about is uh, Dylan Larkin. Um, he's kind of an underrated superstar. I guess that a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's in Detroit. Um, but uh, I guess his best year when you look at his stats was in the 2018-2019 season when he had 73 points in 76 games. Um, and then uh, I, I guess like his next best uh, year was the year before that when he had 63 points in 82 games. And mind you, this was when like Detroit was really terrible. Like, uh, Lucas Raymond and Ward Sider hadn't even been drafted, hadn't even been thought of as guys that they could draft. Um, so, so just keep that in mind. Um, and then, uh, and then the following year after that, uh, big year, he has 53 points in 71 games. That's not terrible, but of course he missed some games. Uh, then he has, uh, the, the next year he has 23 points in 44 games. Uh, so yeah, he also missed some games as well due to injury, but, um, but yeah, well, but still, even if he didn't miss those games, that's not like what we expect him, uh, compared to what we, he was like three years ago. Uh, then you turn it to this year, um, and, uh, he has 55 points in 48 games, um, which is, uh, of course that's over, uh, the, um, the limit but what's interesting is, is that you would think that I guess he he does he is on a line with Lucas Raymond, uh, the other guy is Philip Zadina currently, um, but like you I was going to say is like you would think that a lot of this has to do with the fact that, like, uh, the emergence of Lucas Raymond, the emergence of Moritz Sider, which I'm sure has a lot to do with it. Um, in fact, he does have, uh, let's see here, he has uh, eleven points on the power play, um, which, um, when he's on a line with Cider and Lucas Raymond, um, and I, I, I didn't look it up, but maybe I'll do that while you're talking, but, uh, I am curious to see how many of those points, um, line up with, like, how many of the combinations were with, uh, Raymond and Larkin, but, um, but yeah, I wonder if that has more to do with the fact that, 
um, he's doing really well. It's just that he has better line mates, um, and um, and Raymond is one of them. So um, yeah, he's he's doing pretty well. Um, but uh, again, I don't know if it's like super sustainable because I, I think similarly to the Sharks, I'm not sure how good they can like I'm I'm questioning the whole consistency of the entire team. But but yeah, at the same time, the Red Wings are an up and coming team as well. So so yeah, maybe maybe this does happen, um, and and we can expect more out of like a more than point per game player like Dylan Larkin. But I venture he's more of a like a seventy point guy um, in the future. Yeah, I definitely think sixty to seventy points is is what you can expect from Larkin too, and I definitely think the line mates have have uh, factored into things. Uh, you look at the power play uh, damage, 10 to 1, the goal differential with this quartet. Robbie Fabry, Tyler Bertuzzi, Dylan Larkin, Lucas Raymond. That's over a 76-minute, 34-second span throughout the course of the season. That's 54.1% of Larkin's power play time. Now, the next line that he's a part of is very interesting. It represents 9.3% of his total power play on ice time, 13 minutes and 8 seconds to be exact. It's the quartet of Robbie Fabry, Dylan Larkin, Pius Suter, and Lucas Raymond. They have only outscored teams two to nothing, but they've outshot the opposition eighteen to two in that thirteen minute span. So even with the likes of Pius Suter and Robbie Fabry, you're still getting shots. You're getting shot attempts, shots on target. And again, who's the key fixture on that line? Lucas Raymond. In fact, every single power play line that Larkin's been a part of, Lucas Raymond is on it in some way, shape, or form. You also see Tyler Bertuzzi on there, who has also had a pretty good season. Yep. In terms of even strength, the top line for Larkin has been um, his linemate, uh, Bertuzzi and Raymond. 324 minutes and 53 seconds. So that's 41.6% of his even strength ice time, 17 to nine, goals for to goals against. So that's a plus eight goal differential, not bad. Um, also interesting when you consider that uh, Detroit has surrendered 10 more shots than they've gained in that span. But again, they have shoot opponents 17 to nine, and it's because of that quickness, that speed that Detroit has. So you can go the other way and attack. And that's the thing about this offense too. Like you look at last year and even the year before, if you get Detroit in like a 5 nothing hole, middle of the second period, they're probably not coming back. And uh, this this isn't a chance to chirp the Leafs. It's just a, a testament to <laughs> how good the Red Wings have been this year. Uh, but, yeah, I guess you could call it a chirp as the Leafs as well. But, anyways, <laughs> uh, Detroit was down 6-1, to one, I think, with seven eight minutes one. left in the second, just getting absolutely drop-kicked by the Leafs. It was 7-2 to two after two oh, periods. 7-2, yeah. Within the first six minutes of the third, it was a seven to six hockey game. Yep. And they had 14 minutes or so to tie the game up. And that's because Detroit has the weapons, not just Dylan Larkin, but other weapons around him that can get the job done. And uh, Raymond and Bertuzzi have definitely played a big part of that. Uh, not to say that they're the main reason behind Larkin's resurgence, as you mentioned. Larkin got like 50 plus points uh, on a season where the Rangers had next to nobody there. Uh, they were surrendering goals against like crazy. They were just downright terrible in every single aspect. And he still put forth a decent season. And he's also a pretty decent face off guy for them. 
at the age of 25, I definitely think uh, his best years are ahead of him. And uh, you're going to see that as this uh, young core starts to mature and grow some more. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say 60 to 70 points is the benchmark that we see. But I could easily see Larkin surpassing that uh, so long as uh, the young guys continue to elevate their games and we see guys like Phillips Zadina take the next step forward or someone like a Michael Rasmussen, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, uh, Hockey Reference actually has a cool feature where you can see, like, the scoring logs of, like, any, you can take a look at, like, Dylan Larkin, for instance, and see, like, who assisted on his goals or, uh, yeah. like, who scored the goals that uh, Larkin assisted on. Um, and so I, I haven't counted it up, but I, I am seeing a lot of Lucas Raymond's um, and, of course, Tyler Bertuzzi's. But uh, I am also seeing a lot of Mort Siders on here, too. So I think that yeah. that also, like, we were talking about Lucas Raymond because I guess that makes sense since they are line mates. But we should also mention the fact that Mort Sider, he's, uh, he's also pretty good, too. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then our last guy, um, compared to the four other players that we've talked about, they're all relatively young. Uh, this one is actually 31 years old, so... <laughs> Not a, not a young chicken, but uh, he used to be pretty good too. Um, or he used to be a top. I guess actually, were all these in the? I think all of these were actually top ten picks, um, in their drafts, uh, which is interesting. Um, maybe oh, I guess Dylan Larkin wasn't a top ten pick. But, yeah, I don't think Larkin was up that high. But I know he was a first. He was a first rounder though. Duchesne was definitely a top three pick. He was definitely. Uh, I think he was. Uh, I'm looking here. He was a second overall, actually. A third yeah. overall. And third Peterson, overall. you could argue if you did yeah. a redraft, he'd be top three, but definitely top yeah. three, top five quality players in their draft years. Uh, yeah, Duchesne was the John Tavares year, and then Victor Hedman went yeah. after Tavares, and then Duchesne. Yeah, a pretty good one, two, three there. Yeah, not bad. Um, so, anyways. Uh, so, in terms of Duchesne's career, um, of course, he's been all over the map. Uh, there was that famous, <clears throat> he was a part of that famous trade uh, that screwed Ottawa over uh, by giving them a draft pick uh, from, or Colorado kind of won this trade that ends up sending him to Ottawa. I guess Nashville was also involved with it too, but. Um, but then uh, <laughs> Colorado somehow gets Samuel Gerard in that mix because that was in Nashville or something like that. Uh, but anyways, um, he uh, he has a couple of good years actually. I think I'm trying to pick out like what was his best year. Um, it might actually be the year he got traded to Ottawa. Uh, because bear with me here. I know that you don't want to <laughs> say anything. But he had 10 points in 14 games for Colorado. And then when he went to Ottawa that year, he had 49 points in 68 games. So then when you total that all up, he had 70 points in 73 games when he went uh, from Colorado to Ottawa, uh, which is pretty good. And then the following year um, in Ottawa, he had 58 points in 50 games. And that was on a team that was terrible. Um, so... Uh, yeah, the 2018-19 the so, season yeah. was his best when he had 70 points. That's when he went from yeah. Ottawa to Columbus. Not the year before. The year before he had 59, which is still pretty good. Yeah. 
But, um, but again, 58 points in 50 games on a team that was pretty bad yeah. outside of, you know, the likes of Brady Kachuk and Mark Stone. Yep. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, def- that's definitely a good starting point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, he's, he's had, like, he had 70 points in 71 games in Colorado one year. Um, but uh, on, a, on, like, McKinnon's first rookie year, so that's not terrible. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess... Um, yeah, I guess that would, you're, you're right. 58 points in 50 games when you consider the fact that, uh, yeah, you have Mark Stone and you have Brady Kachuk, a rookie Brady Kachuk, but that's pretty much all you have. Um, he also had, uh, he also had a ridiculous shooting percentage with Ottawa. It was like 21.4% yeah. at the time of the trade to the Jackets too. Yeah. So anyways, he ends up going to CBJ. He has 12 points in 23 games for the Blue Jackets, which isn't terrible. I think he has a decent playoffs, but um, I'll look at that. Yeah, he did have a decent playoffs with the Jackets. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he signs with Nashville um, when he was 29 years old. Uh, he has 42 points in 66 games. That's not terrible, but um, but not great for, like, because he was, you know, they signed him for $9 million. Um, so, so that's probably not what they expected out of him um, in their first year. Um, and then the following year, it gets worse. Uh, he has 13 points in 34 games. And then uh, this year, uh, he has uh, he now has 46 points in 49 games. Um, so unlike all the other ones, it's like you know he has he still has some work to go to make it a point per game player. I guess Larkin and Meyer are the only ones who are point per game player, but. Um, but yeah, do, do and, and Line A are well, as well. But, um, but yeah, this is this is pretty cool that they're showing this now. What's interesting about Nashville, um, and we talked about this when we were talking about them early on in the show, uh, was that like uh, the Predators uh, weren't expected to be this like good um, at all. They were kind of nearing. Um, a, a rebuild. They had traded Ryan Ellis away. They had traded Victor Arvidsson away. Um, yeah, they had UC Saros and uh, and Roman Yossi, of course. But you're like, okay, is this really going to be enough to to make them a contender? And um, and a lot of that like thinking had to do with the fact that Matt Duchesne is on this crazy contract. Him and uh, Ryan Johansson and those two contracts didn't end up panning out or haven't panned out just yet. Um, he's still not worth 9.5 million, but you know, being close to a point per game player is, is pretty good. Um, and something that is manageable at least, or is something that's like, it's not like a Jeff Skinner type situation, um, which is, which is crazy. So, um, so I, I, I think it's as good. I don't know how sustainable this can be, especially since like, we're not sure, if like Philip Forsberg's going to be on the team next year or even this season, but um, and and he's on a line with Forsberg and Granlin right now, but I I did notice that uh, Duchesne is on a right winger now and not a center, so maybe that has something to do with the fact that like he has less stress to worry about faceoffs and whatnot, um, so maybe that has partly to do with why he's doing well now. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's cool that at least Nashville is getting something out of 
Matt Duchesne, where it's like it's still a bad contract, but it's still like you know at least he he's doing something for for it. Yeah, when you look at the NHL line combinations, uh, just uh, to to confirm your theory and where uh, Duchesne fits into the realm of things these days, uh, Duchesne uh, is on right wing, as you said. Granlin is the center, and Forsberg is the left winger. Um, and both of those guys have had resurgences of their own. Yep. But when you look at that line at even strength, they've outscored opponents twenty six to fourteen, which is pretty solid. Uh, again, UC Saros has played into a fact uh, as factored in big time into national success. He's allowed the offense to play their style of game. And when you look at the power play success uh, out of um, the the ten different line combinations that Duchene has been out for in all power play situations this year, the Predators have scored twenty seven power play goals. And the Achilles deal for Nashville over the past couple of years, for the longest time, regardless of how good they've been, is all oh, their power play is not good enough. In fact, their power play is dreadful. And their power play looks pretty darn good. The, the main line that Duchesne's been on with Johansson, Greenland, and Forsberg on the power play, they've outshot opponents 105 to 20 and outscored them 17 to 1 over the course of 100 minutes and 30 seconds, which is, which is quite something, too. Career, from a statistical standpoint, he's on pace for 77 points over 82 games. The highest uh, that it's been uh, is 81, and that was 2013-14 with the Abs, when they were just an absolute force in the league. This would be his highest since that split season with Ottawa and Columbus that I just mentioned. Uh, what, what astonishes me, too, is his ice time over the first two years with Nashville. His, his uh, split season with Ottawa and Columbus was 1850. First year in Nashville, 1653. Then absolutely horrid, 1550. Like not even averaging 16 minutes, this guy last year. And then all of a sudden it jumps up to 1907. Uh, so I, I definitely think the pressure of not being the face off guys definitely helped. He has uh, 10 goals and 16 points on the power play. The first two years with Nashville, he had six goals and 14 points combined. Uh, so that that also is an indicator as to how good his season has been. I mentioned how good his shooting percentage was with uh, that Ottawa-Columbus split season. It was 18%. This year, uh, it's up to 16.1%. It was below 10% in each of the past two years. So I like that for Matt Duchesne as well. This is the Matt Duchesne we all expected. We have seen Matt Duchesne at his best. He wasn't even close to average Matt Duchesne the past couple of years, and we know he's capable of so much more. And I generally thought the Predators would seriously consider buying him out if he had one bad year. Um, in fact, I thought they could have done it as soon as last offseason if they really wanted to, but they've stuck with their guy. He's rewarded them with a great year, and the National Predators need Matt Duchesne to be good. So if he can stay on... The sixty to seventy point track, I I think that's uh, I think that's good for the Predators. I, that's what, what Matt Duchesne is capable of. Anything above that is just icing on the cake for them. I I will well I don't know if they could necessarily buy him out uh, even even if he if he was bad because first off you have to consider there's the, also the recapture penalty uh, with the yeah, Weber situation yeah, to mention that. that probably yeah said, yeah, probably that we just waited out because that yeah. hits, well, never screwed. 
Well, that, yeah, I was about to mention that too, but also uh, they um, they bought out Kyle Turris. Uh, they also have Steven yeah, Santini. True. And the fact that yeah. he still has five more years left with $8 million. I think they have it, or it's like 50%, so that means that they would have to be paying $4 million for five years if they were to buy him out. I forget if it's 50% yeah. or 25%. But either way, like even if it's twenty five percent, that's like two million for five more years left. So, so that's not great either. Um, so so yeah, I, I don't know if they would necessarily do that. Um, although I I get what you're saying because it's like not great um, of a contract. Even still, like I don't know if like he's worth that. But at least they have like it was better than what it was beforehand. So yeah, at least they're getting some. They're getting. Yeah. At least close to the value that they're getting. Yep. Like, e- even just like a a point a point eight point per, per game player. Like that's that's pretty freaking good for Matt Duchesne. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Um, so, oh, by the way, I noticed that the like the Blue Jackets are playing right now. The uh, Canucks are also about to play pretty soon. I don't know about well Nashville played yesterday. I don't think Detroit or San Jose are playing right now uh, this today or either. But just keep that in mind when we're talking about stats uh, for Line A and Pedersen because uh, both of them are playing uh, today. So um, so yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, that's about it for us. Um, you can follow us on. Twitter at Lace Up Podcast. Our Facebook is Lace Them Up. Uh, you can follow, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. Podcast is a good one for sure. Um, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Elser. We'll talk again in episode 310 of the Lace Them Up Podcast.